You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. You're listening to Metamorphosis, a podcast designed to help medical students navigate their medical careers. My name is Crystal. And my name is Yvonne. On today's episode, we will be chatting with Dr. Cal Wenzel, a plastic surgeon, associate professor, and program director in the Division of Plastic, Reconstructive, and Aesthetic Surgery at the University of Toronto. Thanks for joining us on the show and welcome, Dr. Wenzel. Very happy to be there. Thank you guys for inviting me. We're so happy to have you today, and um, we just have a few questions about your medical career and your journey through medicine. So going back to your decision to pursue medicine, was that something that was always on your radar? For me, to be honest, no. Um, I was I was pretty good at science and biology and physics and all that kind of stuff, and so then I went to university and took those courses, and then some of my friends were starting to write the MCAT and things like that. And so I started thinking, you know, what the heck am I going to do with my life? And so I uh, wrote the MCAT, got into medicine, and then uh, kind of went from there. So I honestly really had no idea at the very beginning. And then, so throughout your kind of journey in medical school, how was that like for you? My understanding, you went to University of Toronto. Uh, so how was that? And how did you kind of get to deciding on plastic surgery? So the very beginning, when I got into medicine, finally, luckily, happily, I used to be, I used to think I was an athlete anyway. So people said, hey, why don't you do sports medicine? I said, okay, well, I can do that. And so I talked to someone and they told me like advice wise, well, you can do two years of family medicine and then do a, an extra year after that of sports medicine. That'd be great. And then as time went on, someone else told me if you actually want to do real sports medicine, you should actually be an orthopedic surgeon. Then you can be like the Raptors doctor or whatever, because we're in Toronto. And then so I started to look into orthopedic surgery. And uh, I, hopefully there's no orthopedic surgeons who are going to listen to this. And, and I found orthopedics a little bit boring, to be totally honest. So then thought I was a general surgery keener and started to learn a little bit more about that specialty and did some research and did some electives and then literally stumbled upon plastic surgery. Like it was just not on my radar at the very beginning. So thank you for telling us about your journey through plastic surgery. Sounds like you really took your time to explore quite a few specialties. Can you take us a little bit through what that journey looked like at UFT? Did you sort of decide on plastic surgery later on towards the end of clerkship, towards the beginning, or when did this journey start for you? So for me, anyway, it was halfway through third year out of four years for us at UFT and you guys too, I think at UBC. And again, like by accident. But one of the things that I would say, I don't know exactly what your curriculum looks like at UBC now, but one of the biggest improvements I think they've made at U of T is in the first year, they seem to have Wednesdays off all the time and they're encouraged to actually explore different, uh, you know, observerships and that kind of stuff. So I have a ton of, well, used to, pre-COVID, have a ton of first year medical students coming to spend some time in plastic surgery. And then they're you know, we encourage them too, to go check out this specialty, that specialty, whatever. So we didn't have much time like that, actually. We, you know, I sat in a classroom and, and that was about it. And so I had 
just basically summers to, to pursue things that I thought I might be interested in. So it's a little bit more difficult. So I hope UBC is a little bit similar to U of T because right now I think the way the curriculum is structured, it gives these guys an opportunity to really bounce around and sort of look at whatever they might want to do because it's a big decision and it's uh, not that far in the future for you guys. Yeah, that's definitely true. And that's something we've been missing out due, due to COVID. And so I'm really looking forward to starting that again. Um, and so just curious then when you did see that plastic surgery was something that was piquing your interest, was there anything in particular that you saw in plastic surgery that you weren't getting from other fields? Yeah, so I guess I, I mean, one of the things that we tell people when they are trying to figure out what the heck they want to do in first and second year of medical school is I think you have to figure out, number one, are you surgical or medical? And then, then that kind of leads you to different pathways. So in the surgical world, you know, as mentioned, I, I sort of hung around some orthopedic guys. That was pretty good. Hung around some general surgery people. And then when I stumbled on plastic surgery, to be totally honest, my very first week on plastic. So at University of Toronto, in plastic sur in uh, surgery anyways, and when you're a third year clinical clerk, you have to do three weeks of plastic surgery. And so I wouldn't recommend you say this on an interview for plastic surgery necessarily, but for me, it was 100% true. I, I've heard that in plastic surgery, you can actually sleep at home. It's like a, you know, not in-house call. So I picked plastic surgery. And a few of my friends, had done plastic surgery and they said, oh, you know, it's pretty cool. They do this, they do that. It's like an awesome specialty. And my very first week, there were two plastic surgeons at this hospital, one of which was away. And so the other person was operating a little bit and otherwise we were kind of doing almost nothing except rounding around the hospital on pressure sores. And so we just kind of go from one you know, inpatient bed to the other inpatient bed and debride these ulcers. And I thought plastic surgery was pretty much terrible. And then the guy came back and we actually ended up doing some amazing reconstructions and witnessing some of the stuff that plastic surgeons do, like taking some tissue from your back, your abdomen, your wherever, and reconstructing things like tongues and faces and breasts. It was just it just literally blew me away. And then the biggest thing I would say that I also learned when I was on that service is that the plastic surgeons seemed to, the residents and the trainees and the students seemed to actually be having a really good time. So going back to some of my general surgery days, sometimes people just didn't, didn't seem overly happy. I thought that was just normal. But when I was on plastic surgery, I sort of figured out that people are actually kind of like me and they're seemingly pretty darn happy. And this is a specialty worth kind of delving a little bit more into. Thank you for sharing that with us. As someone who's just finished first year, I don't really have good grasp of pl what plastic surgery really entails. Um, we had a previous guest describe it as the general surgeon's general surgeon. So how would you describe plastic surgery? Well, that's why I mentioned that I should actually give you guys a PowerPoint talk because I, I do this every year for the medical students in, in first year. Well, every year until this past year. 
because we do a whole heck of a lot of things. So the, the talk I would have given you or the PowerPoint or it doesn't really matter, but so things that are on that PowerPoint talk are like a skin cancer on an ear. Who takes care of that? Well, we do, plastic surgeons, not you know, ear, nose and throat. You know, a, a big uh, tumor on a nose, that's plastic surgery, a hand fracture, plastic surgery, uh, cranial facial, you know, some type of trauma where someone falls off their motorbike and their face is literally broken into bits. That's plastic surgery. So we, we do a whole heck of a lot of things that people seemingly for some reason don't know about and don't give us credit for, you know, the only thing people know about, if anything, is like a, a facelift or something. So there's a whole heck of a lot of stuff we do in our specialty that is pretty darn diverse. And the person who told you about this surgeon surgeons is actually 100% true. So when different surgeons get in trouble, they call us to help them out. So an orthopedic surgeon who has, um, you know, a tibia bone that got fractured, that infected, we can fix that by putting some, moving some muscle over there and giving it some blood supply so it'll actually heal eventually. A cardiac surgeon, when they're um, bypass, cardiac bypass, valve repair, whatever falls apart, their sternum is a mess. They actually call us to help fix that. So there's a million things we actually do that for some reason we never, ever, ever get credit for. And so when people eventually learn about our specialty and get turned on to it, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a very comprehensive field and um, kind of amazing because from my, my understanding, plastic surgery works throughout the whole body, as you mentioned. And I'm wondering as somebody who is new to the field, if you were to be kind of in residency um, or a med student, was that scary at all to have to, you know, have expertise in all areas of the body like that? Yeah, I think it's one of the most, most diverse specialties, even though you know, probably if you're talking to some other people, they wouldn't give us credit for it, but it's, it's really, and when the residents actually finish up and they're studying for their exams, it's amazing how much stuff we have to know. Is it intimidating? Yeah. I mean, a little bit, um, you know, but I'm sure other specialties are pretty darn diverse as well. So, I mean, I don't know. Can you, if you get into, into plastics, you're in a good program. Can you actually learn to do everything we want you to do by the end? Absolutely. So thank you for telling us so much about plastic surgery. I feel like it really opened my eyes to the field a lot better. Um, were there any other specialties? I know you mentioned um, that you were interested in orthopedics and general surgery in the beginning, but towards the end, was your mind just set on one specialty or were you kind of still considering others in the background? Yeah, I had, a, I had a tough time deciding between finally general surgery and plastic surgery. So that ended up being the, the two that I had to decide between. And uh, anyway, I think I made the right call on the very end. Um, so I don't know, it, it, you know, different things interest people in different, different ways. The best, the best thing you can actually do is like I was mentioning before, like our U of T anyways, has people have a little bit more extra time for observerships, which may be hampered, hampered by COVID. I know it has been at U of T, but 
you just got to explore. It doesn't even matter what it is. If you want to go hang around a cardiologist and then an orthopedic surgeon and then somebody else, I mean, if you can just get the most amount of knowledge and just try to understand what someone's day-to-day -day life is about and ask, ask them what their day-to-day -day life is about, you know? Because for some people, they're, you know, maybe way more busy than you ever would want to be in your life. Maybe they take care of things that are, you know, the same thing every single day. Who, I mean, who knows? Depends what specialty you're looking at, but uh, the more you can explore, the better, for sure. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think that's something that it's always good to be reminded for so that we don't settle on anything too early because medicine is so broad. Um, and so now kind of looking at your career and seeing you made your decision to go into plastic surgery and now you're in residency um, and you did your residency at U of T as well and now you're the program director. So it's kind of cool, I bet, to see the differences. But I'm wondering what did residency look like back then? How was that for you? Yeah, it's tough. I mean... We're plastic surgeons. We don't honestly don't work as hard as probably general surgeons or neurosurgeons, but they work they work pretty hard depending on the rotation they're on. So a surgical residency doesn't matter what where it is or what specialty it is, you're gonna work pretty darn hard, like harder than you probably ever want to work, and you'll be pretty friggin' tired. So that hasn't changed really. I mean, over time it's gotten a little bit more friendly, but yeah, if you're going to learn how to do a surgical specialty in five years, hopefully, it takes a lot of time and, you know, a lot of exposure to different surgical problems. And so has it changed that much? Nah, not really. I don't think, actually. This whole COVID thing excluded, you know, it's getting a bit, it's getting a bit difficult with COVID to actually think that we are going to train surgeons to do surgery when nobody's actually doing surgery. So... That's tricky. So as a program director, that's like the biggest thing that I think about all the time. Now. I think you guys know, I've, I've been program director at U of T for four years and I was assistant program director for about eight years before that. And I was also um, just finished a five-year term as being director of the Royal College exam. So program director is taking care of all the residents, you know, getting them into the, pro letting them in the program, getting them through the program making sure they pass the exam and then the Royal College exam director is actually kind of fun too to actually look at the other side where people get to the finish line and you know making well deciding how we make sure these people are actually qualified to go out and practice so is it different it's not that much different apart from COVID. Yeah that sounds like a lot to juggle especially I mean everyone has to pivot this year but you don't think about like Residency is only five years, so to learn everything and then also be hit by COVID is it must be a challenge as well. Um, and you sound very passionate about your job as program director. And like you said, you've been kind of in this role or the associate role for a while. So I wonder how did you get to that kind of um, position or, or how did you decide that you wanted to be a part of the medical education aspect of medicine? Yeah, um... I sort of wonder about that myself, actually, to be totally honest. So, so my dad was a university professor. Was it because of him? I don't know. Maybe to a certain extent, but eh, I don't know. I never really thought about it. Um, but at the University of Toronto, I think UBC is kind of sort of similar. 
you can come into residency in plastic surgery and just be, you know, at the end of five years, be a plastic surgeon, or you can also spend more time and do what we call the surgeon scientist training program. So UBC has two spots, one clinical, like you want to be a plastic surgeon, and the other one um, they call CIP, like clinician investigator program. Uh, which means they do at least a minimum of two years of research. So anyway, because it's highly encouraged in Toronto, uh, I wanted to do this extra training sort of thing that was offered to me. And I didn't really want to do a master's in science and kind of you know watch bacteria grow in a Petri dish. Um, and so I thought medical education would be kind of cool. And at the same time, there was a, a pretty influential general surgeon in Toronto who, who uh, was a fairly big powerhouse in, in surgical education. So I sort of went under his wing and two of our division of plastic surgery staff who also had a medical education degree. And so I had some great mentors and uh, anyway, now the, the, the big cheese who I was describing before, he was he went on to be the Dean of Queens Medical School and now is the president of the Royal College. So had a, I don't know, an opportunity to do education. And so when I did that, I did research, like we tried to figure out how best to train residents and how best to figure out who would, would be good residents. We led into the program based on various tests. And then also tried to figure out how to best develop curriculum and exams to measure like you know how well we're actually teaching these people so all kind of good basic skills that pair, you know hopefully have gone on to uh, help me do a decent job at what I do. Thank you so much for sharing that it was really interesting learning about your journey through medical education I kind of have two questions that uh, stem from what you were talking about. Um, the first one was, you mentioned that you had a mentor in residency, and I was wondering, um, did you also have a mentor throughout medical school, and how did you go about finding mentorship throughout your different levels of training? Yeah, so I think mentorship is, like, super important. In medical school, honestly, I, did, I didn't. Like, I just really didn't. I just kind of moved on from rotation to rotation or whatever it was. And I don't know, I just didn't come across that and nobody prescribed it to me. So in our, in our training program right now, which hopefully is going to be helpful for these guys, I was telling you during COVID times, like we don't even know what they look like. Uh, we have, we always assign a PGY2, meaning post-grad year two, like second year resident to mentor a PGY-1, like first year resident. And then we have a fourth year resident also mentor a second year resident. So we're, we're trying to actually make sure people are connected all the way along. So for me, it worked out okay. When I got into residency, um, probably the biggest mentor uh, in my life was, was a guy named Mitch Brown who was the program director before me, maybe not surprisingly, you know, he, uh, like everything he did and everything he thought about and the way he, I don't know, ran his life and thought about life just kind of made total sense to me. 
And so we had talked a lot about basically everything. And so I took over the program directorship from him. I also patterned sort of some of my practice, I guess, after him as well. Uh, so he was majorly influential, but I, at the same time, I have to say that I, some people actually need someone to talk to a lot. I don't think I really did, but I could actually tell that there was something there that he was doing in his life that I kind of really, really liked and respected and wanted to emulate, I guess. I feel like mentors are just so important um, in helping you grow. I feel like for this, I've always heard that it was really important to find a mentor throughout uh, medical school and training and residency, but I guess during COVID times, we can't really meet in person. It's been a bit tougher this year. You have to get a little bit lucky too, right? So, I mean, even though we, we just did it actually, we just sort of because uh, we have new PGY ones coming in now, like so the CARMS match has happened. And so um, just uh, like last week, literally, uh, we, myself and Kathy, my program administrator, we actually divided up who, so, you know, this person is so-and-so's mentor. It doesn't mean it's going to actually work, right? It's like someone, maybe it'll work, or I hope it's going to work. There's someone to contact, but, uh, you know, Really, it's like a real life sort of thing, as you say, in person, not COVID, where if you actually click with someone and you can really sort of see yourself in their life, you know, then, then it works from there. Yeah, I agree. Um, some personalities mesh really well, and it's hard to just match people based on, I guess, not meeting them at all. I'm, I'm just curious, um, you mentioned briefly before that you have some tests that you administer for applicants in your program, and just curious, could you expand on that? So that also has changed with COVID time. So for the first time last year, we did um, virtual CARMS interviews. You guys probably know about that. But anyway, back in the olden days, people would travel around the country and actually come to your institution and interview and I, I do give, well, I have given, not last year, but previously, a, a test on basically general plastic surgery knowledge that we would expect a medical student to know. So, no big deal. Previously, we had tried a, this personality sort of test that we thought would maybe help us select candidates that are, you know, not crazy. And anyway, that didn't work. We found out because we gave it to the staff as well that a bunch of our staff who are great people were kind of crazy too. So and the validity of that didn't really work very well. And my research back in the day looked at predictors of surgical excellence in the future, and there's almost nothing. So there's a bunch of things like dentists do, for example, that you have to carve a tooth out of a big thing of chalk or whatever. None of that, none of this has ever proven to be useful. So it boils down to almost nothing can predict who's going to be an amazing surgeon later. And we've, and we've seen it, to be totally honest with you. We've seen people who are around for fellowships in Toronto. And it's like, wow, oh, this guy, this guy's amazing. Like, uh, you know, what happened six, seven years ago when he applied to our program? Oh, yeah, well, I didn't think he was good enough because of X, Y, and Z. So 
Yeah, you keep on trying. Just like getting into medical school, by the way, as you guys probably know, there's like a little bit of luck that goes involved with that. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I, I'm sure that makes your job a lot harder, but that's very encouraging that there isn't necessarily a specific mold uh, to predict what a good surgeon might look like. Hard to believe, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You hear a lot of stereotypes, so you're always curious if it's true or not. But Yeah, my, my research looked at, well, looked at looking at the evidence and then looked at everything like we had people do stuff with screwdrivers, stuff with whatever, visual spatial tests, all kinds of like, you know, everything. We ran a whole whack of battery tests at people and uh, pretty, pretty weak, to be honest, evidence that you can sort of predict who's going to be awesome in the end. So I don't know, to be determined, maybe you guys will figure it out. Yeah, we'll see. Um, like you said, I guess some of luck is involved, but I know a lot of people who are interested in plastics or considering it, obviously, do you get nervous because the residency spots are more limited in plastic surgery usually? And so as you've seen a lot of applicants come through, I'm just wondering what if you have any tips or ideas of what medical students can focus on during their medical career so that they can feel a little more comfortable making the decision to apply to plastic surgery. Yeah, so I can only, I'm, I'm only going to speak to the University of Toronto because obviously that's what I know about. But <clears throat> so we like, we like research, whatever. You can say that's the an important thing or not an important thing, but that factors in. So when we look at somebody's application, we, we divide it into four different things. So one is academic excellence. So it has gotten over the last 20 years, harder and harder to quantify that because Believe it or not, back when I went through medical school, I got an actual number like grade, like 87, 92, whatever. A lot of people now get pass fail. So it's become harder and harder to know who is like super smart and then just a little bit smart. But academic excellence, we try to garner a, a score, literally. And we get five people to score each application. And the next category is research productivity or potential. And so we do look at what people have done in the research realm. And the next one is leadership or probably better term extracurricular stuff. So the stuff you do outside, like, um, yeah, it doesn't matter what it is. You could, uh, you know, organize, uh, well, honestly, it doesn't matter. You could be president of your medical school. You could be an organizer of raising 5,000 bucks for juvenile diabetes, like whatever, like things that go into that, which shows us that uh, there is some potential there. And then the final thing in our four items that we try to grade anyway, is uh, reference letters. And so that was easier again, when people could visit for electives, it'll happen again by the time you guys are there, but uh, so that we take pretty seriously. So when people get letters from people we trust and know and historically understand that they kind of know what a good medical student is and they say, this person is the best student I've seen in the last three years or whatever, it can mean a lot. We, anyway, the way we do it, we have five people evaluate each one of those four topics or whatever contributors to your application. And then I look at every single application and score them in the same way. And then 
we sit around a table and decide who to interview and then the interviews happen and then we decide how to rank people. Thanks so much for sharing what goes on behind the CARMS curtain. The process is definitely shrouded in a lot of secrecy, so it's really nice to hear about what goes on on the other side. We were also wondering, um, because you still practice as a plastic surgeon in Toronto, how how it's been uh, been like working as a plastic surgeon after residency and, and how you're able to balance all of your roles. Yeah, so again, it's a COVID discussion. So pre-COVID, I got to say I was going a little bit crazy because most of the stuff I would do for program director, administrator type stuff would be done on the weekend. With COVID, strangely enough, I have a few days off here and there because I have no OR days. And so all of a sudden I can do stuff during the week, which actually seems to be not that bad a thing. (laughs) So we'll see what happens when everything goes back to normal. But by and large, my practice is, I would would call it general plastic surgery. So uh, that usually means I take care of a lot of hand stuff, skin stuff, and breast. That's probably the average plastic surgeon. So within hand, we take care of things like cut tendons, cut nerves, carpal tunnel syndrome, things like that. And within skin, we take care of, you know, you got a little mole you don't like or a cyst that happened to occur on your shoulder or wherever. And lipomas, that kind of stuff. And then within breast, it's what you can imagine. So it's uh, you know breast reduction, breast augmentation, breast reconstruction. And so that is about 90% of what I do. So a lot of it can be done with local anesthetic, like purple tunnel, little cysts and moles and lipomas and trigger fingers and little bumps here and there. And so we have a fairly good minor surgery suite at, at my hospital anyway. And then certainly something can't be taken care of with just local. So that needs a general anesthetic. You go to sleep for it, like a breast reduction, for example. Again, historically, probably two to three half days a week, I'm doing things with local anesthetic. So skin bumps and that kind of thing. One to one and a half days a week, I'm doing stuff with general anesthetic breast reductions, breast reconstruction, that kind of stuff. And then about a day a week, I'm in my office, which is outside the hospital. And I see various different people there. It's not not super fancy, but I don't do any operating there, but I see consults and follow-ups there. And then another about day a week, I'm in what we call the clinic at the hospital, which is usually um, people who have sort of, well, we call them walking wounded. So the people who come through the eMERGE and have you know, broken, broken finger and, uh, you know, got a burn from the stove or whatever. Things that are fairly easy to just come to a outpatient walk-in clinic. And then by the end of that, that's pretty much five days a week and uh, call stuff at my hospital. We have currently four people on the call schedule. So every fourth night I'm on call, which for me, that's usually a Wednesday. And then every fourth weekend, um, on call for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which I'm gonna to touch touch wood, is usually at my hospital anyway, not that busy, but around the city, there are certainly busy places that are known as the trauma centers and, and they, you know, some of the staff there and residents can be 
basically up all like all night long taking care of someone who you know has had some unfortunate thing where their head went through the windshield or who knows what but uh respect to yeah i guess that's about it so kind of like a day in the life i guess yeah that was a great description it definitely sounds busy uh and always something new actually it seems very very general um but I think plastic surgery is also known as being a very innovative field as well. So I was curious to know, where do you think the field is headed? Well, interesting. Well, I'm going to give you a, a, a historical fact first, and then I'll tell you what happened in the University of Toronto after. So historically, the very first kidney transplant, you guys have probably heard of people have it, you know, kidney transplant. The very first one that was done was done by a plastic surgeon. So just kind of tells you where the innovation is with plastic surgery and the skill set, to be totally honest, where you can hook up arteries, veins, ureters, whatever. So this guy actually won the Nobel Prize for his work and the very first kidney transplant. So what's happened in Canada, the very first arm transplant was done at the uh, at University of Toronto, Toronto Western Hospital by a guy named Steve McCabe. So things like that are that's probably where things are going to go. There's pros and cons of that kind of stuff and pretty heated debate. So if you actually, if you actually do a kidney transplant, heart transplant, lung transplant, as you guys probably are learning, you have to be on immunosuppressants for forever. That leads to a ton of different complications after that. But if your life is saved by this new hurt, meh, you know, it's okay. You can sort of, well, you can imagine sort of dealing with that or weighing that fact. And an arm transplant seems like a great idea, but if you're on this immunosuppressive stuff and the next thing it gives you a serious cancer that actually kills you in eight years, is it worth it to have an arm that sort of works again? I don't know, not, not life-saving, but very possible. So the next step in arm transplants, face transplants, all that kind of stuff is to try and figure out better immunosuppression so that your body doesn't recognize this face arm as something different. So it doesn't attack it and you don't have to use all the medication we currently use. And then if that actually happens, then it's going to be an amazing, an amazing field because all of a sudden we can do stuff with limited to minimal complications thereafter. I I don't think I've heard too much about um, the new transplants that that's going on or the new innovations that are going on. I feel like when I think of plastic surgery, I hear a lot about caring for burn victims or um, microsurgery. So I, I wasn't expecting that response. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I mean, one of my greatest disappointments, I guess, probably. Uh, so I've been, as you guys know, I've been program director four years, assistant three years, whatever. Been in practice 16 years. One of the biggest things I wanted to do, probably because of the education slant that I have, is I really wanted to get into the medical school. And I've kind of done that. Like I, I give a lecture every year, you know, I've sort of done some things. Uh, really tried hard to get it. Well, just like this, anytime someone asks me, you know, can I bug you on whatever night uh, you want to sit down and do this kind of thing? I say yes every single time. 
But the one thing I can't wrap my head around is plastic surgery seems to be so limited in the medical school curriculum that drives me bonkers, to be totally honest. Like, that's what I can't wrap my head around. So at U of T, there are three lectures given by plastic surgeons in four years. That seems pretty crazy to me. So there's a whole week of dermatology, for example, like a week of dermatology versus three lectures. And I just, anyway, I can't, literally can't wrap my head around it. So I've tried, I've tried my hardest and just can't sort of crack it. And maybe you guys do better at UBC. I have no idea, but uh, I think our biggest problem is the fact that people do not know what our specialty actually does. Yeah, I, I think so far for us, we may have only had one lecture uh, from a plastic surgeon and it was about, I think like getting an, a nerve that was cut and uh, how fast they regenerate or, um, yeah, so that, that was a really interesting lecture. Uh, so we're also wondering, can you talk a little bit about what the differences are between cosmetic and reconstructive surgery? Well, I mean, well, who pays for it is one of the differences. <laughs> so um, in Ontario, we have OHIP, the Ontario Health Insurance Program. Every province has uh, insurance covered stuff and then cosmetic stuff is outside of that. So it can be very small things, cosmetic outside of OHIP, like I don't like this mole on my shoulder. So people have to pay for that a couple hundred bucks. If people come in and actually want a breast augmentation, for example, tummy tuck after having some kids, those sort of things. That's actually paid outside of OHIP and or well, sorry, OHIP or insured benefits. And so the bigger the operation, and if you need to do it with general anesthetic, going to sleep as opposed to local anesthetic, then the higher the cost. So if I do something like somebody's cyst or mole that they don't like, it probably ends up costing them a couple hundred bucks and their hospital fee is about a hundred dollars and you know, not that big a deal. Something like a tummy tuck will end up costing about $8,000 all of a sudden because the facility fees are a lot more general anesthetic aid and anesthetist. And uh, so things end up, you know, getting fairly expensive from that point of view. Yeah, thank you for letting us know kind of the structure of insurance, I guess, and, and how that does affect the different types of surgeries. Um, and since you, you do see kind of all different sides of plastic surgery, I was wondering, is there kind of a favorite thing about the field or a favorite case that you really like to do? And then also something that might be the least favorite? I honestly don't even know. I, I would say the reason that, and, and I think it was maybe Crystal at the very beginning mentioned that uh, plastic surgery is sort of head to toe or whatever. When when people come to interview for plastic surgery, we, are, we ask them, you know, what do you like about plastic surgery? And the answer is almost always the same. Not that that's wrong, but it's the reason we're all in the field, actually. It's so diverse. We operate literally from head to toe. People operate on three-month-old babies with cleft lip. I operate on 90-year-old people with a big skin cancer on their forehead. So it's all, all over the body. It really, really is. And it's so variable that it just kind of keeps you interested in stuff. You know, that's the one thing way, way, way back when 
when I was looking at orthopedic surgery and then the guy I shadowed, you know, did an observership, whatever with, did a lot of knee stuff. So he seemed to do the same operation day after day after day after day. And I'm sure he's pretty good at it, but uh, I kind of thought to myself, eh, I don't know. I just, you know, I'm going to kind of look around a little bit more and see what's out there. So I think it's, it is really the variety in plastic surgery that almost nobody knows about unless you guys like you're doing are probing into this and trying to put something together like this, which is great. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, talking about some of your favorite parts of plastic surgery. Um, I guess before we end off, I guess I just have one last question. Do you have any advice for your medical self if you could go back in time? What would you say? You know what? I'd probably give you the same advice that I give my daughter who's in just finished first year university. She doesn't know what she wants to do in life yet. She doesn't have to do medicine, whatever. doesn't matter. But the advice I, I've told her for 10 years now is just do your best. Keep all your options open. So when you finally decide what the heck you want to do, you're actually prepared to actually have a, you know, knock them dead application and you'll be in good shape. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think it's just, I agree, really important for us to keep an open mind. I feel like some people come in with some tunnel vision, so it's great to be reminded to uh, be open to, to different specialties and just have a great time in medical school. Uh, so thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of our episode. Thanks so much for joining all of us all the way from Toronto. Uh, Dr. Wanzel, we learned a lot about the field of plastic surgery today, so thank you. And for more episodes of Metamorphosis, look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and catch you at the next episode. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 